Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Rob, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Understanding Diagnostic Technologies and Biomarkers. And I am and I'm so delighted to have all of you on the call today. Um, we have on the call today over 350 participants. You come from all of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Greece, Iran, Ireland, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Nepal, Nigeria, Pakistan. So really it's quite a large call of all of you on the call today. And I have to say that it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us in discussing this topic. Um, we have wonderful speakers on the call today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Leonard Saltz, and Dr. Saltz is at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Um, he is colorectal expert at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and he also is a professor of medicine at Wild Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Saltz will be addressing a number of topics on today's program. Um, having to do with um, understanding diagnostic technologies and biomarkers. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saltz. Hello, everybody. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to have a chance to talk to you today. Um, what I'm going to do in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes or so is talk to you about uh, the concept of biomarkers and how these can be helpful to us in optimizing uh, people's care when treating uh, uh, cancer. When we talk about a biomarker, what we're talking about is something that we can measure or identify that gives us some idea of what either might happen in terms of the cancer or what might happen in terms of the effectiveness of, of our intervention. <clears throat> so, um, Within the context of biomarkers, to help explain them, I'm going to divide them into two categories. One is called the prognostic biomarker, and one is called the predictive biomarker. The prognostic biomarker gives us a sense of the prognosis. Prognosis is a word we use a lot in the English language, and most of us don't really speak Greek, which is where it comes from. But gnosis, knowledge, pro, future, trying to gain some knowledge of the future is what a prognosis is, what's going to happen. And so a prognostic marker might tell us whether or not the patient is more likely to have a, a favorable outcome or more likely to have a less favorable outcome. And so the nature of a prognostic marker is by doing this test, we can either feel a little bit better about how things are going to go or we can worry a little bit more but the very nature of a prognostic marker is it doesn't necessarily open up a treatment option. Now, that's where a predictive marker comes in. That's a different story. A predictive marker is something we can test that says this therapy is likely to be beneficial to the patient or this therapy is unlikely to be beneficial to the patient or 
the use of a particular biomarker may tell us this person is likely to do better with chemotherapy or is unlikely to benefit from chemotherapy. And you can appreciate how this information can really help us individualize our recommendations for each individual patient. So, for example, if we take a large group of patients that all have, let's say, breast cancer, for an example, and we say, should these uh, people, after having their operation, have chemotherapy? Well, there are biomarkers that might be able to, that can give us uh, important information and say, if your marker comes out this way, you're in a situation where whatever your chance of being cured is, we can increase that chance with chemotherapy. Uh, other people with uh, the same biomarker test may get a result that says chemotherapy won't change your chance for cure, but of course chemotherapy will have side effect and risk, therefore it's not a good thought for you. Okay, And so we can use the biomarker to say across this population of patients that all look the same, um, this group will benefit from chemotherapy, this group won't benefit from chemotherapy, and obviously we can use that information to decide who we're going to recommend chemotherapy for and who we're not. Now, another way of looking at these markers in terms of breaking them down and understanding is a marker that opens a new possibility versus a marker that blocks a potential possibility, what I call an inclusionary biomarker, something that includes the patient in a new option that we wouldn't otherwise think of, or an exclusionary marker. So for example, in lung cancer, um, uh, some patients with lung cancer may, on genetic testing of their tumor, show a particular mutation, a mutation in the epidermal growth factor receptor, a mutation in a gene called ALK, a mutation in a gene called ROS. If we see those markers, that biomarker tells us that drugs that we have that target that particular marker could be helpful to the patient, and that's where we get into the concept of a precision medicine. We see in the tumor a biomarker that says, here's something that is making the cancer grow, and we have a drug that can do something about it, and we treat with it. Um, so that's an inclusionary marker. We know that if you have that particular mutation, then a drug will help it. Um, if you don't have that mutation, and we treat you with a drug that's targeting that mutation, it's going to be wasting everybody's time because it's not going to help you because the drug is going after something that isn't there. So we can use these biomarkers to tell us this person uh, has a tumor that is going to have a high probability of being vulnerable to this particular targeted drug. And another person, we don't see the target and we say this person really has no realistic chance of benefiting from this drug, so we're not going to give them the expense and the toxicity of trying. Now, in the field that I take care of the most, which is colorectal cancer, we have an important marker that is mostly exclusionary, but I want to give you an idea of how this is changing over time. And that's a gene called KRAS. And what we've learned is that KRAS mutations are present 
in a substantial number of patients that have colorectal cancer. And there is a class of drugs that inhibit a receptor called EGFR receptor drugs that will only work if KRAS is normal, if it's not mutated, if it's what we call wild type. And so we've learned to test these patients, uh, all of our patients with colorectal cancer, looking for the marker, uh, 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 the biomarker of a KRAS mutation versus a KRAS wild type, because we know that if there is a mutation, that this class of drugs, which has side effects and expense, has no chance of, of helping, and therefore we're not going to expose the patients. Whereas if the uh, biomarker shows us that the KRAS is wild type, then that's going to tell us that there's a very reasonable chance this drug is going to be helpful and we'll explore further and look for reasons why we might want to use that drug in the patient or not. So again, biomarkers identify certain aspects of a particular patient's cancer that help us understand either the prognosis, whether it's a, 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 a tumor likely to do well or likely to do poorly, or a predictive marker of whether a drug is likely to be beneficial or unlikely to be beneficial. And these are things that we can use to substantially improve the accuracy of our selections for treatment for individual patients. Now, I mentioned that KRAS is an exclusionary marker, that it tells you that the drugs that we have on the market now, a particular class of them, won't work. But once we see that target, then researchers go to work, <coughs> excuse me, on trying to understand how to hit that target. And now we have a subset of KRAS, a particular type that is called, where the specific mutation is called G12C, where there are now drugs on the market that hit that mutation. So the, it, it's a, a KRAS G12C mutation is both exclusionary for one class of drugs, but inclusionary for another class of drugs. And so what we need to do with all of our patients is gather the information and then use it to decide what is going to be the most likely uh, approach that's going to be helpful. Um, now, one of the things to bear in mind in these markers is they have advantages, they have disadvantages. They're worth talking to your doctor about before you decide if, in fact, uh, you're, you're comfortable with having this uh, uh, have, having these tests drawn on you because if we're talking about a prognostic marker, of course, if it comes up with good information, that's reassuring and that gives everybody a good, a comfortable feeling. But you always have to consider the other possibility. We could draw a prognostic marker and get the answer we don't want. And if it's information that isn't going to change our management, then it's really kind of a discussion that you need to be having with your caregivers about whether this is information that's going to be beneficial to you and whether you're the kind of person that wants this information or not. 
So not every marker that we have is a marker that every every patient is going to need or going to want. And this is, again, one of the topics that you want to be discussing with the caregivers when you make decisions. Now, one of the topics I was asked to talk about today, uh, in addition to biomarkers, was clinical trials. And these really come together uh, in a very important way because the vast majority of clinical trials these days are based on biomarker selection of patients. The idea of one-size-fits-all for chemotherapy is really kind of a, a 20th century sort of thing. And the way that cancer treatment and cancer drug development is moving is identifying the specifics about a particular patient and his or her cancer that help us come up with the right targeted or appropriately directed therapy. So um, a understanding of the different biomarkers in a tumor may open up clinical trial possibilities. So if someone is working on a drug that targets a particular genetic mutation and your tumor happens to have that mutation, that's A, going to make that trial available to you, and B, make that trial uh, a much higher probability shot than just taking a shot in the dark with a non-precision selected or non-biomarker driven trial. other topics that um, I was asked to talk to you about today are um, guidelines in preparing for telehealth. And this is something uh, I would argue that one of the only good things that came out of the uh, coronavirus pandemic is moving the concept of telehealth and, and uh, technology forward probably about a decade faster than it would have otherwise. And this is a tremendous convenience for patients because very often, In the field of medical oncology, we can do an excellent job taking care of patients by an audio-visual conference. And I want to emphasize, it's got to be video and audio. Um, A telephone call, a telephone consultation is really not as good. As a clinician, I need to be able to read the patient's facial expressions, read their body language, see how they're carrying themselves. And we've learned out of necessity through COVID how to do fairly involved physical examinations over a video where um, basically having a patient move and press on certain areas and so on allows us to get virtually all of the information that we might otherwise be getting in a, a clinic visit. So it can be tremendously beneficial to patients, save people a lot of time and discomfort, and also make Uh, consultations at greater distances available to people without the inconvenience of travel. But certain basics, you got to be familiar with whatever technology you're using, whether you're using a computer with a camera, whether you're using a smartphone. um, You need to be working in advance of initial consultation to make sure that you can connect with that doctor's office. You, of course, need to be in an area that has good Internet. Um, If you have poor Internet signal, it's a setup for failure to try to do a telemedicine consultation. It's really not going to work very well. Um, It's the kind of thing that is usually useful to think about getting online five or ten minutes before the appointment, coordinating with the doctor's office, and making sure that you do have that connection. 
Often it's useful to have a backup plan. Well, if my computer doesn't work, can we do FaceTime on my iPhone? Can we use WhatsApp? Can we use Doximity? There are a number of different um, uh, mechanisms that we've all gotten very comfortable with in terms of utilizing uh, technology. So these are possibilities. When you get on the call, what you want to be uh, prepared for is what are you going to ask? Okay, the doctor is going to have his or her agenda of what needs to get done, but it's important that your agenda gets fully uh, vetted as well. And to keep yourself from forgetting about important things, you want to make notes. You want to have a list of questions that you want to cover, and if it comes up in conversation as you're talking with the doctor, check that off so you don't have to go through it again. But make sure before you get off that call that anything that was on your mind before the call has gotten addressed and you've gotten an answer to it. This is particularly important in terms of addressing quality of life concerns because it's mm-hmm. all too easy to focus primarily on the specifics of uh, how we're going to treat the cancer and hearing about how that's affecting you, what your concerns are, what your goals and priorities are is a really important thing for doctors to hear, but important for you to have on your agenda to bring it up. Uh, the last thing I'm going to comment on today is uh, the concept of what's happened in this country with open notes and uh, electronic forwarding of information. This is a very two-edged sword. On one hand, it's very nice for patients to have access to everything. It kind of gets rid of the sense of black box and mystery. On the other hand, much of what's in the medical record has an awful lot of complex wording that doesn't really mean very much, that isn't really very important, and it can tend to agitate and make people very anxious. So I simply caution you to know yourself and decide if say, reading your scan report before there is a doctor available to explain it to you is really something that's going to make you feel better, or are you better off waiting until you have your appointment to review the results with the doctor? I personally have always felt that one of the most important things I do for my patients is present information in context of, well, what does this mean, and what are our choices, and what are we going to do about it? So just getting a report um, can, I think, be uh, very unsettling to patients um, if there's bad news, there's no one to talk to about what uh, uh, what to do about it. And often it's not bad news, but it's confusing and it just agitates. So be aware of that. Don't try not to overreact when you if you do look at that. It's very hard to keep that um, that, that 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 Pandora's box closed. But um, be aware of what's going to work for you. Um, I think I'm going to stop there and try to leave some time for questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Salt. That was really excellent. Just an outstanding presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during um, the, the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr, and Dr. Kerr is a pathologist with Alina Health, and Dr. Kerr will be addressing, well, Dr. Kerr is a pathologist, and she will, she's from Alina Health, and she'll be addressing the role of the pathologist and actually um, what a pathologist does and the importance of really talking to a pathologist about your um, pathology reports. So I want to thank you um, very much and I'm going to turn this over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I am really excited to talk about diagnostic technologies and biomarkers as Dr. Salt uh, covered so thoroughly uh, from a pathologist's perspective. So. Uh, 
um, a pathologist works in a laboratory day in and day out and really deals with um, producing these biomarkers that you're seeing um, that help with um, not only prognos prognosis and prediction, like Dr. Stoltz had covered, but also um, the um, are increasingly integrated into a pathologist's diagnosis. So first I'll cover um, what pathology is and what a pathologist does. So every time you get blood drawn or a biopsy or a surgery, a pathology laboratory handles those specimens from you and, and performs testing. For cancer, everything from blood to body fluids, to small needle biopsies to surgical resections go from a patient to the pathology laboratory for more testing. And a pathologist is the doctor that leads that medical laboratory and is responsible for the test results. So there are many kinds of diagnostic technologies that a pathologist uses. Uh, the first that I'll talk about is microscopic diagnosis, where we take a look at those cancer cells under a microscope to determine the type of cancer. The tissue from a biopsy is sometimes smeared directly onto glass slides, uh, which we call cytology, or sometimes it's processed, actually most often it's processed, into a, a little block of wax in the laboratory, and then that, that block of wax with the tissue in it is cut into very fine, thin sections that are placed onto glass slides to look at under a microscope. The pathologist looks at all of the glass slides and determines what, what is causing the lesion that was biopsied. If we see cancer in the biopsy, we have to determine exactly what kind of cancer that is. Determining the primary site of the cancer or where the cancer started is often the most important first step in determining the best therapy. This is because most available cancer therapies are studying, are studied knowing the type of cancer. And so, for example, the Food and Drug Administration approvals for such therapies are usually based first on a pathologist determining the cancer type under a microscope with the use of pattern recognition and special stains. So the pathologist will determine if the tumor that was biopsied is a lung cancer or a colon cancer or a breast cancer or a blood cancer or some other type of cancer. Each type of cancer also has different subtypes and grades. So for example, lung cancer types are subdivided into adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, small cell carcinoma, or other less common subtypes. And these specific subtypes of cancer have different approaches to therapy. This process of, of making a diagnosis usually takes a few days, but can take longer depending on if the tumor is common or is of an unusual or rare type. Now, many types of cancer, like blood, lymph node, or brain cancer, now often require biomarkers as part of the diagnosis. So just looking under a microscope at the pattern of the cancer isn't enough anymore. Biomarkers um, can be another diagnostic technology then that pathologists use as part of the actual diagnosis. So biomarkers could simply be what we call immunohistochemical stains that we look at under a microscope to look at what proteins the cancer is making or sometimes the stain that we look at under the microscope is designed to screen specifically for a genetic mutation in the tumor. 
So biomarkers you might have heard of in your cancer are tests like ER, which is estrogen receptor, PR, HER2, PDL1 is a very popular biomarker looking at um, immunotherapy, uh, BRAF, ALK, IDH1, T53, mismetric pair enzymes. These are all biomarkers that we can look at uh, with special stains under the microscope. But some of these biomarkers that are um, used for predicting therapy are also integrated into our pathology diagnosis. Other types of biomarkers, and these are the ones we talk about perhaps more frequently, are looking for more sophisticated things in the tumor, like mutations in the genetic code, or what we often call shorthand DNA of the tumor cells. Uh, and next generation sequencing is a special diagnostic and um, it's a special laboratory technology that allows us to look for many biomarkers all at once. Uh, so like DNA mutations or if a tumor is producing too many copies of a gene, we call that amplification, or rearrangements in how the genetic information is arranged in the tumor cells. All of those can be tested for at once with many genes with next-generation sequencing. These changes that are detected by next-generation sequencing can tell us what is causing the tumor cells to grow out of control, and if there's a matching drug that can shut down that pathway, or as um, the previous speaker had described, can tell us that a particular uh, drug won't work for that patient. These results can take several days uh, to weeks, depending on the complexity of the testing. So when biomarkers are needed for the diagnosis, the pathologist will usually give a preliminary or a provisional pathology report with the diagnosis based on microscopy, and then issue a more refined diagnosis for the cancer after the molecular biomarkers are completed. An example of this now in my practice is in endometrial cancer. Uh, so we can make a diagnosis of endometrial cancer pretty simply by looking at the tissue under a microscope and we give a, a, a cancer type and a grade. But then after that, we have to get some biomarker tests and provide a molecular subtype as well. So the final diagnosis might look something like endometrial carcinoma grade 3, which is based on looking under the microscope. But then also some other tests are done, and I might classify that with a molecular subtype. So for example, mismatch repair deficiency. So the final diagnosis might look like endometrial carcinoma grade 3, mismatch repair deficient, which is something sort of new for us in, in pathology integrating those two. This combination of the pathology diagnosis and the molecular testing is now being studied in clinical trials of endometrial cancer to determine which patients with otherwise the same microscopic diagnosis and stage might benefit from very aggressive treatment with chemotherapy and radiation, or may actually be better off with less aggressive treatment, or just watchful waiting and no further treatment after surgery. So after all of this work in the laboratory, a cancer patient and their doctors will receive a diagnostic report from the pathologist taking or containing the final diagnosis for the tumor and any tests that were used to help make the diagnosis. The cancer center where I work has very specific rules for which tests the pathologist orders based on the cancer's type and stage so that every patient coming through our doors gets the basic nationally recommended testing needed for that cancer type to determine the next therapy. 
I encourage you to keep a copy of all of your pathology and molecular reports either printed or electronically, especially uh, if you're moving between health systems, say you live uh, in the winter in the south and, and come up north for, for the summer. The, the diagnosis and biomarkers could even be important years down the road uh, when memory fades of your cancer diagnosis and treatment. So keep these, re these reports available. For example, if I'm looking at a biopsy of a lymph node and I know that the patient has a history of lymphoma or leukemia or a solid tumor like breast cancer, knowing that exact prior diagnosis and the biomarker profile will help me to be a lot more efficient to make a diagnosis for the current lymph node biopsy rather than having to start over from square one. So this saves a lot of time and money and helps me to make a more accurate diagnosis if I know the prior pathology reports. Um, lastly, I just want to cover what I think are some key questions to ask your cancer team regarding pathology and biomarkers. So first, when your cancer is diagnosed, read your pathology report and ask questions about what that diagnosis means. Sometimes a cancer diagnosis is difficult for the pathologist, so you should ask your cancer team if your diagnosis might benefit from having a second opinion. Just like having a medical second opinion about your cancer treatment, your pathology slides can be sent to another pathologist to review to see if there's agreement on the diagnosis. Second, ask your oncologist whether all of the standard biomarkers for your diagnosis have been performed that could influence your next step in treatment. Sometimes it's possible that not all of the recommended biomarkers could be performed because the biopsy was too small. In those cases, you should ask your oncologist whether it would be worth trying to get another biopsy to get all of the biomarkers done, or if even a blood test, often called a liquid biopsy, might be enough. Often the decision-making for first-line treatment only includes a small number of very simple biomarkers, while decision-making for second- or third-line treatments can be more complex and require more extensive biomarker testing. So in the end, I hope this conference has helped you understand a little better how your pathology diagnosis and the molecular portrait of your cancer can inform shared decision-making with your team about treatments like surgery, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, or even no therapy and just watchful waiting. That's all I have for today. Uh, I'm turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was outstanding and just wonderful information for everybody to have. And our next speaker is Dr. David Viswanatha. And Dr. Viswanatha is Professor and Consultant, Division of Hematopathology, Co-Director Molecular Hemopathology Laboratory, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. And Dr. Viswanatha actually, first of all, is with of AMP, um, uh, it's the um, uh, Association for Molecular Pathology, and he will be addressing um, their free programs and services and provide their phone number and email address, and also um, will provide you information about their website. It's a really a huge resource for all of you on the call today. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Biswanatha. Hello. Um, I hope everybody can hear me all right. Um, uh, so thank you very much for attending uh, the uh, conference today. Um, I'm here to tell you, as uh, Dr. Messner mentioned, um, uh, about the uh, AMP, which is the Association for Molecular Pathology. 
Um, and this is a professional medical society uh, re that represents over 2,900 clinical practitioners who have expertise in molecular diagnostics. Um, our members include molecular pathologists um, and other uh, members of, of specialized pathology practices, qualified doctoral scientists, and medical laboratory scientists and technologists, all of whom are involved in designing, performing, and interpreting molecular diagnostic tests. Uh, so AMP members represent multiple key areas of diagnostic me medicine, uh, including infectious diseases, uh, hematologic and solid organ cancers, and also hereditary genetics. So while our members perform numerous tests for many different um, aspects of healthcare, uh, and including most recently, of course, COVID-19 diagnostic testing, uh, we are also highly involved in the daily provision of high-quality clinical molecular testing for cancer. Um, and as discussed by uh, the previous speakers, uh, Dr. Saltz and Dr. Kerr, uh, you know, AMP professionals perform molecular analyses to do a variety of things. So um, the testing that, that are performed uh, by AMP professionals in, in various uh, labs around the country uh, will help diagnose or, and, and or classify uh, types of cancers, um, develop biomarker testing to help a pa determine a patient's prognosis, um, and uh, guide the best treatment plan before and after therapy, uh, and also to provide molecular testing to determine an, an individual's uh, risk of developing various types of cancer, so the heritable risk uh, in some cases of uh, developing a cancer in the future. Um, so AMP is very committed to patient care by providing clinical guidelines and other educational materials for pathologists, uh, laboratory professionals, and ordering physicians. Uh, in addition, we are very active and engage proactively in advocacy um, to help improve uh, insurance coverage for crucial tests in the United States, um, and we have partnered closely with, pa with the patient advocacy community uh, and launched a patient-centered uh, website as well. Um, this website includes an overview of activities that are performed in a uh, standard clinical uh, molecular diagnostic lab, along with descriptions of types of molecular tests such as DNA sequencing, uh, you heard a little bit about next-generation sequencing just now, um, as well as frequently asked questions, free infographics, including Spanish-translated materials, and regularly updated educational resources. Uh, the link to the patient-facing website will be distributed after the call, uh, and uh, we encourage you to please look it over and to contact us with any suggestions for additional materials. And uh, with that, I will turn it back over to Dr. Messner for the uh, uh, next um, phase. Thank you so much, Dr. Desvampa, and thank you so much for being on this call today. And I want to really want to thank you for participating. Um, we are delighted to be partnering with you today on this program, a very important program. And I, I'd like to acknowledge also that we have partnered today with AMP um, on today's program, and we'll be partnering with them in future programs as well. And now I would like to say a few words about Cancer Care Services and its programs, and then. Um, and then we'll um, kind of wrap up to some extent. But uh, I just want to say a few words just about the fact that you can access a number of programs, free programs and services from Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national organization providing free services to people living with and coping with a cancer of all different types of cancers. And you can contact Cancer Care on our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And most importantly, we would not want any one of you to leave today's program point you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of the community support and we're all here to help you and to provide you with all the support that you need 
to cope with your cancer. So um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.